I'm Liz Hirschnoff-Tolly, and welcome to Capital Coffee Connection. I'm really excited to be here today because we have a great guest. Before we get to our wonderful guest, I wanted just to talk a little bit about why we're doing this podcast. So this podcast is to have conversation with our elected leaders, but not to talk about policy, not to talk about politics, but to talk about who they are as humans, to know their humanity, their heart, their home, and really just to give people who are interested in politics or people who are curious about politics an opportunity to actually get to know who the people are. So many times when I talk about people that I know in the political world, um, they'll say, oh, he's just a politician. Oh, she's just a politician. And what I've learned through working in political um, arenas and not being a politician is that there are so many wonderful people who are dedicating their lives to making this world better for everyone. And so the hope in this podcast is that we will have an opportunity to get to know different political leaders. I will say that I am fascinated by the human genome because if you have studied that or you understand that, basically human beings are 99.6% the same. That means 8 billion people across our world or more are really connected with everything that is the same. And there's only 0.4% that actually brings us apart. And so my goal is to figure out what that 0.4% is and to talk about that, but also to look at it as how does that bring us together versus how does that tear us apart? I was recently talking with some friends, and we were talking about our first jobs. And most of our first jobs were not glamorous. We were filing papers, answering phone calls, cleaning up uh, storage rooms, scooping ice cream. And my first job was working for my father. And my father was in the schmata business, which is the clothing business. And my first job was working for him. And I worked since I was 13 because he started working when he was 13 in his father's gas station. So on my Saturdays or my vacations, I would go down to his factory, and it was dirty and it was noisy. There were a lot of swearing going on. Um, and it was beautiful because there was so much energy, and I would work for whomever needed help that day. And it was diverse. We had people from the Latino community, black community, white community, Armenians, Japanese. I mean, it was really an incredible group of people all coming together. And so when I was thinking about who I'm speaking with today um, and talking about like where he comes from, I was thinking about this story um, because I know that he also uh, comes from a family where his father was in the schmata business. So I want to welcome our guest, who uh, many of you know as Congressman Adam Schiff from California's 30th District. And for those of you across the country who are like, what is California 30? It includes things like Disney Studio, the Hollywood Bowl, Chinese Theater, the Greek Theater, and so many more places that people come when they come to L.A. as a tourist. Um, it also is just a very diverse part of Southern California. So before we skip into who he is, I want to just say he is also a candidate who is running to become the next senator from California to the U.S. Senate. And as he is running, what I'm hoping is that today we'll have a few minutes to have an opportunity to really just get to know who Adam Schiff is. So I want to welcome you, and I want to thank you for coming for coffee. Although Adam is not having coffee. <laughs> Adam is having black iced tea, 
Do you not drink coffee? I And welcome. I have never had a cup of coffee. Well, actually, I've had a sip of coffee once when I was a prosecutor. I did uh, a six-month stint in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And I was invited to, I was working in Slovakia. Uh, it was Czechoslovakia at the time. And I was invited to meet with the Slovak Attorney General. And he offered me a cup of Slovak coffee, which is, uh, you know, very heavy concentrated. For someone who never drank coffee, this wasn't exactly the way to start. Yeah. And uh, But out of politeness, <laughs> I, I had some coffee with him. That was the first cup of coffee I ever had and the last. Really? You never, like, even like in school, you went to law school, you did not drink coffee? I, you know, just never started. And then it kind of became a thing. Uh, I drink a lot of iced tea, so I get my get caffeine, caffeine in different ways. But uh, I do feel like I'm missing out on a whole cultural experience. When people like get up in the morning and they make coffee, I love the smell of it. Um, but I, I also just don't drink a lot of hot liquids. I'm not don't drink hot tea. That's interesting. So I'm an ice iced okay. tea person. Okay. Well, enjoy your iced tea, and thank you <laughs> okay. for being here. So I'm going to just jump right in. Um, you were born in Massachusetts, then you moved to Arizona. And then you ended up in Northern California. That was all during your youth. How was it to move so much and to be in different places, especially as you grew up? Uh, well, as you say, my father was in the Schmata business, and yeah. he was not in the manufacturing uh, of textiles. He was he was a salesman and essentially a proverbial traveling salesman. He started out as what you call the lumper. Uh, the lumper is the guy that holds the bags for the salesman. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. That's and interesting. Eventually, he worked his way up to salesman, but he was on the road a lot when we were kids. And uh, he would go away for a week or two weeks, and then he'd come back home, and he called uh, my older brother and myself um, his two shadows because when he was home, we would follow him around from room to room and around the house uh, just to be with him. Right. And uh, he was ultimately promoted and transferred to Arizona. We moved there for a couple of years and then to the Bay Area where I lived in Alamo, Danville. And, uh, you know, I remember being uprooted because all of our family was in the Boston area to Arizona where we had no family. Right. And I recall uh, coming home from school one day and finding my mother uh, crying in the laundry room. And I was, I was in a panic. I'd never seen her cry. And what's wrong? What's what wrong? What's wrong? And she said, I have no friends. Oh. And it was heartbreaking. Um, my father, I think, to console the two kids who were uprooted, got us both motorcycles. So I had a motorcycle when I was nine years old, and my brother was 11. You didn't need a friend. You had a motorcycle. We, I have to say, it was a total blast. Um, I can't imagine getting my kids motorcycles at that age. but Or um, any age. Or uh, Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we were lucky where we lived, and I don't remember the transition being that difficult. I think it was more difficult for my mom. I'll come back to that a second. But first, then you did move and your dad changed. He was no longer a salesperson. He bought a lumberyard? Uh, he did. The The company he was working for uh, was in strong decline. Mm -hmm. And he ended up buying a lumberyard. And uh, like yourself, I ended up working for my dad in the lumberyard. I think and he gave you really good jobs, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, there's nothing like lugging around sacks of concrete and roofing materials yeah. and sheets of plywood to make you want to go to graduate school or really any school. Um, he worked really hard, and it was hard work. Um, it was an hour commute to the lumberyard, an hour back after a long day. Um, but I, I think actually the first job I had wasn't for my dad. The first job I had uh, was when I was... 
uh, in high school, um, I went knocking on doors at restaurants to see if I could get a job. And I got a job, uh, knocked on the door of a place called Yogurt Delights uh, in Danville, California, typical California kind of restaurant. And um, gave my pitch to the owner, who was a woman named Mrs. Blair. And uh, she said, well, we just had our dishwasher walk out on us. Um, when can you start, she asked me. And I said, I can start right now. And she gave me an apron, and I went to work. So uh, you were a dishwasher at a yogurt store? I was a dishwasher, and then I worked my way up uh, to uh, work the cash register because I had good enough yeah. math skills. Yeah. But I, I always think those are the kind of jobs that really give us a solid foundation. It does make you want to go to grad school, perhaps. But as life goes on, you have really learned so many, and I think also people skills, because it's all about how you get along. And at that point, that's what you can learn, and then you have to use it, and you want to use it later on in life. I, that is so true. Uh, my mother was a realtor, um, and she was a great salesperson. My father was a great salesperson. And whether it's selling clothes or selling lumber, um, it's, the sa- it's the same skill. Yeah. And, uh, and they were both really good at it. And uh, like you say, those skills of interacting with people and keeping customer service in mind are actually quite relevant in politics, um, particularly customer service. Politics is a customer service job. It's a retail. It's it, talking it, to it is a totally retail job. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your family because your grandparents, they came through Ellis Island. My grandfather and my great-grandparents actually came through Boston. So I don't think they came through Ellis Island. And uh, they came from, on my father's side of the family, Lithuania, and my mother's side of the family, Poland, uh, from uh, Vilnius and from Bialystok, respectively. And uh, they got out while they got out. That was good. And we, you know, we've looked to try to find some of the family that didn't leave. And I think some were lost in the Holocaust, and others made it to other parts of the world. Uh, but... Uh, uh, but most left around the turn of the century, and it was a good thing that they did. Going back to your parents, what was like, do you think, other than buying you a motorcycle, um, what were like the, th- the best influences and maybe things they said to you or, or comments they gave to you that were mottos or, or, or who you are today? I think our parents tell us things that, that we sometimes don't necessarily listen to at the moment, but they sink in and then they become part of who we are. It's so true. Uh, my father told me when I was young and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, he said, uh, if you're good at what you do, there will always be a demand for you, mm-hmm. which was a very liberating idea yeah. because you could follow your passion. You just had to try to be good at it yes. and you could make a living. And uh, as a result, I felt um, free to pursue my passion in public service. My brother is a playwright, chose a, another very difficult uh, career, um, but I think we both felt like we could because we had that kind of encouragement. Uh, on my mother's part, um, it was just, I think, her unconditional love. And both my parents gave their two sons a sense of self that was strong enough to withstand uh, hardships along the way. Yeah. And that was probably the greatest gift that they gave us. Yeah, it's important. Okay, in high school, because we all have high school stories. Like, do you have uh, a moment in high school that still stands out that was awkward, funny, wonderful, um, that you can look back at and go, oh, wow, yeah, that happened to me. And it could have been in a movie scene, but it was my life. 
Uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, it, it would take me a long time to go through all the awkward moments. Um, <laughs> I, one that stands out uh, just now that you ask it was uh, I, um, uh, I asked a girl out to the junior prom, and my father was at work, and I didn't know how to tie a tie. I had never worn a tie up until the prom of my junior in high school. And my mother didn't know how to tie my tie. I think I remember her trying to tie it for me. Um, and so I just tied it in a knot. And <laughs> I got to my date's house, and her father answered the door, and I introduced myself. And I could tell he was kind of looking below my face. Yeah. And I said, it's not right, is it? And he said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and he, uh, he then stepped around me. And untied it and then tied it correctly. It's a good one. It's a good one. We should get that photo somewhere. Um, and how about a teacher? Did you ever? Did you have one teacher that motivated you, supported you, and kind of encouraged you to keep going or to find some passion in studying that then you carried on through? I, you know, I had a, I had a few really great high school teachers. Um, one was a woman named Barbara Abbott, uh, and Barbara Abbott taught Shakespeare. And I developed a kind of a lifelong love of Shakespeare. And it's part of, I think, why I love language and the beauty of language. Um, she used to take her class up to Ashland, Oregon, for the Shakespeare Festival. And we'd camp out Amazing. for several days. We'd go see a play every day, sometimes two plays a day. It was wonderful. I also had a speech and debate teacher uh, named Al Gentile. Uh, and he was an incredibly wonderful teacher, eccentric personality, um, I had another teacher, uh, McClellan was his name, who taught contemporary world problems, and he was uh, wonderful also. What's most memorable to me about that was he assigned these projects um, around different countries, and uh, he brought, you know, he would assign groups of students to work on it, and he was very innovative. And um, because I was a decent student, he paired me with three other students who were not so good. Uh, and we did this project together, ironically, now when I think about it in hindsight, it was on Russia. So we did this um, 3D map of Russia. We yeah. drew all the rivers and mountains, and we prepared a report on Russia. And, um, and it got a certain number of points in the class, but the innovative part of it was he asked each of the members of the team to, on a percentage basis, uh, indicate how much work they did on it compared to others. And these three of my colleagues basically gave me all the credit for it. And I got so many points from that project. He told me I didn't need to take the final exam in the class because I was already doing I well love enough. It. I love that. I love that. Okay, so fast forward. Then you were playing tennis one day, and you met your wife. Yes. Who I understand is a better tennis player than you. Uh, absolutely. Um, and your wife's name is Eve, so we can get over the Adam and Eve jokes and humor. But there is something... Um, I think like so. I have to tell you yeah. though about that meeting. Okay. Because when she, we have a when, mutual. Were you on the friend. same side or were you opposing we sides? We were on opposing sides. We we had a mutual friend who arranged some doubles tennis, and his name was Mark. And after we played tennis, I called him up and I said, "So what's the story with Eve? Are you two dating? Because I'd like to ask yes. her out if you're not." And he said, "No, we're just friends." So I called her up and asked her out. Now now bear in mind, he takes credit for fixing us up. But I only give him half credit, and, and this is why. Uh, after I called up Eve to ask her out, um, she called up Mark to find out what's the deal with Adam. He just asked me out, and Mark said, 
he's a good guy, you'll like him, but I'd be careful. He's not the committing type. And this is why I only give him half credit. Yeah. That does not sound like the kind of thing you say it's when you're a, fixing something. Not the best up. friend at that moment. No. But uh, we've been married now for 20, let's see, we're married in 1985. So what is that, 28 years? So I would say I am the committing type. Yeah, I'd say you did pretty yes. well. And um, talk a little bit about, like, to be doing the work you do and to have a wife and kids. Like, she has to do a lot. And she has been your supporter, but she also has been the person who's made it all possible for you to do the work you do. So could you just talk a little bit about like what that means to you? Because that's pretty incredible to me. Uh, it is incredible. And, you know, being married to someone in politics is not an easy thing. She's a very private person, which makes it even more challenging. Um, because uh, my district is on the other side of the country from the capital, it means I'm going back and forth all the time. So, you know, raising our kids, that meant more of that challenge fell on her shoulders. But, but the, the difficulty became even more intense during the last several years um, when Trump was elected and I became um, the sort of public enemy number one of the MAGA crowd. And we started to get death threats uh, directed at me, at her, at the whole family. Yeah. Uh, and if she wasn't such a strong person, we never could have gotten through all this and wouldn't be able to get through it still. Um, I do remember one time coming home in the evening, and she was very upset, and she was visibly shaking, and I thought it was some threat that we had received. And this was, I think, in the first year of the Trump presidency, uh, when he started attacking me and Fox started attacking me and and I said, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? And she said, I just can't stand how millions of people, they just hate you, how millions of people hate you. And this was something that I'd had to acclimate myself to, that uh, with the megaphone that Trump had, with the megaphone on Fox, with the mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson's, all the rest of those people constantly attacking me, there was just no way I could respond. Uh, or set the record straight, there were just going to be millions of people that thought ill of me, and there would be nothing I could do about it. Yes. And I ha either had to acclimate myself to it or find another line of work. And, But I didn't realize until that moment that she had never acclimated to that. And in many ways, I think it's harder on a spouse than on the on the elected official. Yes. Because they're, they're even more powerless to respond. Um, so I'm, you know, lucky in so many ways <laughs> uh, to have a wonderful wife like Eve, but, uh, but particularly in these most trying times for the country and trying times to be in office, um, she's been, a, you know, just uh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting perspectives. You know, like sometimes we lose sight of what the perspectives are of people around us that are with us, but what are they going through? Right. So... Talk about your kids a little bit, and not specifically, but just being a parent. So what is the best thing about being a parent, and what is one of the most challenging or the challenging parts of being a parent? Uh, the best thing about being a parent. So it started um, with the good. I, you know, I just go back to something someone told me when my daughter was born. Uh, I have two kids, um, Lexi and Eli, uh, and I have to sort of prompt myself not to call her Alexa because she doesn't go by Alexa anymore. She goes by Lexi, but I still call her Alexa. Yeah. Um, they, um, they're they now 25 and 21. and Both legal. Uh, 
What's that? I said they're both legal. <laughs> yes. Well, my son is, I should say, he will be 21 at the end of the month. Um, he still thinks he's legal. Oh, yes. Oh, that's for sure. And has for some time. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember when my daughter was born, someone telling me, you're not going to believe how, you, how much you can love uh, something. And, uh, and that was so true. And, uh, you know, I, it would be hard for me to say what the most wonderful thing about it is. Um, they're just, uh, they just bring us so much joy. Uh, you know, the hardest thing is, um, you know, as one of my friends once told me, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Right. And, and it's heartbreaking when your kid isn't happy for whatever reason. And we're lucky our kids are happy for the most part, but you know, life is life. And, um, and, uh, but I, I, I'm so proud of both of them and love them to pieces and feel very lucky, uh, very lucky. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes it's the hard, I think some for me, sometimes the hardest thing is to see them going through a struggle, but knowing that I can't fix it yes. and that I shouldn't fix it because first they need to go through it, but it is very painful to watch any child of ours struggle through a time. But like you said, we are blessed that they can get through it and it's not always that way, but it is... Um, it is one of the harder parts about being a parent. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, often what you say in trying to help doesn't help at all. <laughs> um, it makes it worse. Yeah. And that part's hard, too. Yeah, that's called parenting. <laughs> parenting <laughs> yes, 101. It is. Overall, and, I, and I, I keep going back to, like, this advice thing. What's the best advice somebody ever gave you? And what's the worst advice somebody ever gave you? You know, I think the... The, uh, I think what my father told me was among the best advice. Right. And, and the funny thing is he doesn't remember saying it at all, which, you know, is typical. I, I'm sure I've said a lot of things that will stay with my kids probably in a good way and probably in a bad way that right. I will never remember having said and, and will deny. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think the best political advice I, I got was from Tom Umberg, who is a state senator in Orange County. He and I were prosecutors together back in the U.S. Attorney's Office some 25, 30 years ago. And he was in elective office long before I was. But when I did get elected, he told me, never walk past an old friend to greet a new friend. And, you know, so much of politics is like life. It's about relationships with people. Yeah. And, you know, I see when I go to political events and I'm talking to colleagues, sometimes I'm, you know, looking over your shoulder to see who else is there. And, you know, they're never quite as interested in the conversation they're having as the one they might have with somebody else. Or, you know, there's the new kind of shiny object in politics. And, uh, and I just have never forgotten that. I, I, I think it's so true. Yeah. Um, and I cherish the friends I've had for a long time. And, and you, you never forget the people who are there when you're just starting out and you're yeah. struggling. I lost my first two races uh, for office. And the people that stayed with me, notwithstanding that, you know, I really cherish those relationships, but I think that's really great advice in life is not to walk past an old friend to greet a new one. Yeah, it's very appropriate. Yeah. In terms of bad advice. <laughs> Just curious. I don't know whether I'd put this in the category of bad advice or not, but I do remember uh, when I was first running for office, um, I, I met with someone, I told them all the ideal, you know, idealistic reasons I wanted to run, and they looked at me... Um, and said, go home and take out your Rolodex and put a number next to every name in the Rolodex 
and then cross it out and write in half that number, and then cross that out and write in half that number, and add up those numbers that still remain. If it adds up to 350,000, you should run, and if it doesn't, you shouldn't. Wow. Um, now, the thing about that advice was, on the one hand, it's terrible advice to say that it's all about money. Um, on the other hand, I ignored that advice. I ran in a field of 14 people, and I came in 11th. And we all pretty much you know, finished in the order of our fundraising, which was also sad. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was terrible both because there was a, more than a grain of truth in it, but it was also terrible about what it said about the system. Yes. And it was one of many reasons why the first bill I introduced when I was elected to, to the Congress was a campaign finance reform bill. Yeah. Well, we'll, still get, we'll get there one day. Yes. Um, who is your biggest cheerleader in your life? Uh, well, I, professionally, it's Nancy Pelosi, who has been just a wonderful um, mentor and guide and champion. Um, she urged me to run for Congress when I first ran. Right. Uh, she asked me to serve on the Intelligence Committee, later made me ranking member and chair of the committee, asked me to lead the first impeachment trial, and asked me to serve on the January 6th Committee. Uh, she has really uh, been such a uh, formidable influence in my life and and just sort of studying at at the feet of the master uh, you know the greatest speaker of all time yes. I've learned so much in my private life um, you know my family are my biggest boosters uh, I would say my mother who who passed many years ago was my the, no one comes close champion yeah uh, you know her kid could do anything yeah Will you tell the story you were starting to say before we started filming about her supporting you when you first ran? I thought that was a great story. So my folks were were retired and living in Florida, and my mother got what was called then a Watts line so she could make toll-free calls to California. And so she was calling voters in California to urge them to vote for her son. Yeah. And, you know, a candidate's mother is probably the most effective campaigner. Uh, you get a call from a candidate's mother, it is very hard to say no. And my mom would tell me these incredible stories. I would have her call independents and Republicans because the Democrats were too easy for her. Right. And, uh, and she would tell me, she'd get people on the phone and she would make the pitch and they would say, Mrs. Schiff, I'm going to vote for your son because you called me, but, but I want to ask you something because I want to be absolutely certain about this. Are you really Adam Schiff's mother? <laughs> and she, yes, I am. Uh, are you sure you're Adam Schiff's mother? Yeah. And she'd say, I think I ought to know. Because if I find out that you're not, in fact, Adam Schiff's mother, I'm going to be very upset. I think there were some voters that thought I had a bevy of older Women. Jewish mothers calling people, on pretending on watch lines yeah. for Florida, pretending they were my mother. But um, to this day, I have people just, in fact, last week I had someone stop me and say, I got a call from your mother. Now, that was 25 years ago. Yeah. And the fact that people still remember getting a call from her. I just love hearing that uh, because it just tells me again that her memory is alive, not just to me, but to others as well. And uh, but she was my biggest yeah. champion. That's a beautiful story. Okay, so on that we're going to go to like a quick round of some quick questions, um, and you can elaborate, but they're just sort of ways for people to go. Oh, I get that. That's who he is. So the first one is, um, what is your favorite meal? 
Uh, probably dinner. And, and I tell Eve, although it's a very hard case to make, that I'm the ideal husband because I don't want a home-cooked meal. <laughs> um, I like going out to dinner. Yeah. And we constantly have to argue about going out. She wants to stay home, and I want to go out. The thing I like about going out is, particularly you know, when the kids were younger, but even now, um, if you're at home, the phone's ringing, or the kids want to leave the table before the end of the meal. But when you're having dinner, you're all at the table. You can all enjoy being with each other. And when I was a kid, going out to dinner was so, so seldom a thing. We just didn't go out to eat very often. That it, when we did, it was super special. Yeah. And and I've never lost that feeling. So yeah. dinner, going out, is my with favorite. With the family, meal. with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, favorite type of music? Rock and roll. Um, I, I like a lot of music. I, uh, but I, what I most listen to probably is seventies uh, seventies ish rock and roll that I. Brings me back to high school and college, and um, and I would, yeah. Okay, obscure favorite Taylor Swift song. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Cardigan, uh, and I'm only able to answer that question because I was at the Democratic convention last month, and uh, the, you know you have thousands of the most active Democrats. I was able to answer every question about the most minute policy until a young activist asked me my favorite Taylor Swift song and completely stumped me. <laughs> uh, so I went home and did some homework. But uh, And you enjoyed the homework because she's a great singer. Yes, yeah. yes. Good one. Okay, uh, favorite movie? Um, probably To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Um, the, the movie I quote the most, though, is The Big Lebowski. I'm a bit of a Big Lebowski nut. Coen uh, Brothers. Coen Brothers. In <laughs> fact, I will share with you one of my favorite uh, anecdotes, um, uh, because my staff and my campaign team know how much I love The Big Lebowski, they frequently use lines uh, from the movie. So I'm on the House floor, and I'm watching the speakership fight, where Kevin McCarthy goes through like 18 rounds before he gets yeah. enough votes. And at one point, Matt Gates, uh, this crazy right-wing MAGA Republican, gets up and he's attacking Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and Patty Horton on my team sends me a text message in that moment um, with one of the lines from the film, which as applied to Matt Gates in that moment was absolutely perfect. And the line is, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I know you're really busy, but do you have any hobbies? Uh, do you, you know, have time? Uh, I love to go out to the movies. I wouldn't exactly call that a, ho a hobby. It's sort of our favorite date night. Um, I love to work out. I did triathlons before Trump, and then I just, like everything else, he ruined, he ruined my training schedule. He ruined your triathlon. Uh, so I'm lucky to get to the gym these days. Um, but if I, you know, if I had more time, I would love to work out more. I'd love to, to go diving again. I used to love going diving. Yeah, it's pretty special. Um, last one of this round, authors you enjoy reading. Well, um, and I know you're an author yourself, but if you had free time, what would you be reading besides political? Um, you know, I, I usually will keep a work of fiction on one coast and a work of nonfiction on the other. Um, you know, I, and I also get on sort of binges. I was on a Cormac McCarthy binge and just got his latest book, and he just recently passed, I mm -hmm. believe. Um, I think he was, I, used, I was saying up until recently, that he was the greatest American living author. In terms of nonfiction, I read a lot of biography, um, and 
I, I think my favorite biography recently was the biography of Grant by Ron Chernow, which I would say don't be intimidated by the size of the thing. Uh, I, I always found the Civil War to be inaccessible. I, find it, I found it very difficult and dense and, and hard, to, hard to get into until I read Grant, and maybe because Grant takes you through the Civil War through the prism of a, cert, a single person. It was actually much easier to comprehend. And, uh, but Chernow was such a brilliant writer and historian um, that I think that was, of the biographies I've led li- lately, my favorite. Yeah, so you don't read like a lot of People magazine and things like that? I don't read a lot of People magazine, uh, although my wife just got a subscription because our daughter uh, lives in New York now. She is a celebrity booking, works for a celebrity booking agency. Ah. And so that my wife can stay up, up to date on, on what she's doing, what she's doing she that. decided that we would subscribe to People. Okay, good. Well, it's, it's got its purposes. Yes, it does. I love that. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the place where I do this game, which is called Kiss, Mary Trash. Others know it as Kiss, Mary Kill, but we don't kill. Um, and do you know the game? I do not. Oh, okay. Well, it's going to be fun. So basically, I'm going to say three things, and that you have to say what you would kiss, what you would marry, and what you would trash. Oh, and it's geez. like a car game families could play and around the dinner table. Obviously, you didn't play that, but it and it's really easy. So I'll start with a really easy like softball: winter, spring, summer. So you have to say, like, the one that you would marry, that's the one you like the most. The one that you would kiss, you like second. And the one you would trash is the one that you like the least. Oh, well. So winter, spring, summer. Um, I would say marry the spring. I love the spring. Okay. Um, kiss the winter. Mm-hmm. I love the snow. Uh, and trash the summer. I hate the heat. Okay. See, you, you're good at this game already. <laughs> okay. Um, this is another really hard one. Pastas. Fusilli, penne, spaghetti. Oh, definitely spaghetti. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you got I would marry spaghetti. Okay. Um, and I would probably kiss. I would probably kiss Fusilli, mm-hmm. and uh, trash the penny. Trash the penny. Wow. Yeah. Okay, you grew up in it the. It does remind me though. Yeah. My daughter was five, um, and we asked her what does she want to do with her life. She said, "I want to be a hospital doctor and help people." Or I want to work at CPK and uh, make penne. <laughs> and make penne. Yeah. So we thought, wow, that's great for us. We'll either get free medical care in our old age or fresh pasta. And now she's booking talent for People magazine. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, things change. It's lovely that they have those dreams. Yes. Um, uh, this is, we grew up around the similar time. You're a little bit older. But I have one on old TV shows. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Brady Bunch. Um, Merry Happy Days. Uh, probably kiss the braiding bunch and and uh, to, yeah, I'd have to part with uh, um, Laverne and Shirley. Okay, cereals: Rice Krispie. I know you're vegan, but you did used to eat cereal. Rice Krispies, Cocoa Puffs, Fruit Loops. Um, Merry Fruit Loops. Wow. Uh, kiss Cocoa Puffs and uh, trash Rice Krispies. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I did. I I did though. Particularly like Captain Crunch. Oh, I should have known and, that. Okay. Uh, and I would even go the Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. Wow, that was yeah. a real deluxe breakfast when yeah, you were you know, growing up. it was definitely diabetes-inducing. <laughs> and something you would not want your kids no, to have today. Um, if you were going to relax, would you? how do you rate Netflix, reading, meditating? Uh, I would say, uh, hmm, that's really hard. 
Mary Netflix. Yeah. Um, kiss reading, and trash the other. Meditating. Yeah. Yeah, I but I I actually do meditate a little. My brother is very much into meditation. Uh, I just have never really um, done much of it, but I I do try it occasionally. Yeah. Uh, sports and these are just random. Tennis, pickleball, golf. Uh, Mary Tennis, and, and I literally did Mary Tennis. Yes, you did. Um, I met Eva on a tennis court, and she plays quite often, and uh, and I love to play, although I just don't have the time. Uh, kiss pickleball and and trash golf. Okay. And then the last one is um, music. Pop, country, hip-hop. And I know you like all kind of music, but if you had to think, what would it be? Pop, country, hip-hop. Uh, Mary Pop, kiss Hip hop and trash country. Wow. Okay, yeah. it's all good. I all know. Good I uh, I think I just lost the country vote there. You may have, but this is we didn't kill anything. We're just trashing, and okay. it has to be a, an order of something like okay. that. We're we're kind of getting to the end, and I had two last question thoughts. One is, you know, Maya Angelou said, "Do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better." And I thought about, like, when I was thinking about you and, and who you are as a person, not as a political figure, but really who you as a person, I think that sort of is who you are. You're always striving to do better, and then when you feel like you've done better, you want to keep doing better. Does that make sense to you, and how do you I, feel? I had never heard that quote. I love that quote. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a, a great way to look at life. Um, you, you do your best until you figure out, you know, uh, that just doesn't make sense, and then you do better. Yeah. I, I love that. And I also think it's like constantly knowing that you can improve, but also never just resting on your laurels and saying, oh, I, I accomplished something, or I have this family, but then how do you keep going forward to enrich both your political world and, most importantly, your personal world? Uh, I think that is so true. And, and I you know, think also, and this sounds very trite, but, uh, but when you fail at something, um, if you, you know, if you're willing to look hard at why you failed, uh, it really does contain the seeds of a future success. And yeah. after having lost my first race, I learned a lot. I really knew nothing about running for office when I first ran. I lost my second race. Um, it was hard to come back from that, but I learned from that too. Yeah. And uh, when I, you asked about reading, um, one of the things that I love about biography is less about what people do when they get to the point where you have you know about them right but the story of how they got there is always much more interesting to me uh, and the story of how people got to where they are is a story of struggle and you know that's that ends up being what defines us yeah. is our struggle more than our success in, in a way yeah. and uh, and struggle is is trying and failing and trying again yeah. And, and that's the purpose of this podcast, which is to have those moments where we can really learn because people just know who you are now. But like, where did you come from? Exactly. Um, and so that is it. And then the last one, it's a question of joy, because I feel like so many people right now are rushing around and stop. Sometimes they have a hard time stopping and just saying, what do I appreciate? What is good? But the idea of joy to me is like if one has joy, um, for whatever they do, then they actually spread joy. And that spreading of joy to others can become contagious and like a little ripple becomes a wave. So my, my last question is, what brings you joy? 
And how do you feel or how do you see that the joy that you get from what brings you joy then you can share with others and what that has an opportunity to do? Uh, you know, I, I, I get a lot of joy from my family, but I also get a lot of joy uh, by laughing. I, I like to laugh and I like to be around people who are funny and I like to um, go to see uh, movies that are funny and I look for the humor in things. And I think these days in particular, if we didn't laugh, we'd go mad. <laughs> uh, every year I do a comedy night um, at the Improv or the Ice House. Uh, it's a campaign event, but um, it's my one of my favorite campaign events because it's just fun and you laugh and you laugh at yourself. Um, I, I do a little stand-up at these events and then we have professionals come in so people will tell me not to give up the day job, uh, but I just totally enjoy it. And uh, you know, being able to laugh at yourself is particularly important these days, but yeah. being able to share that with others is also a treat. Yeah, I think it's very true. I mean, when we laugh, it actually, I mean, scientifically, and I don't mean to go down that, but they show that laughter and smiling and feeling good is actually very good for your body and for your health. So I think that that is something that is, spreads joy when you make other people laugh and then they go home and then they tell the jokes or they feel good, they continue to um, take the seeds that were planted at the comedy show. I, I will check out your comedy show next <laughs> okay. time it's in town because I'd like to see if you should keep your day job, you know. Sounds but I good. think whoever, um, you know, is listening and learning is really gotten an opportunity today to kind of not know just who you are after all these years of hard work, but how you got there. And also, I hope to understand how much more they can learn from you and enjoy and support and understand because we have a lot of, we have a long life still left to live. And you have a lot of things to actually contribute. And I really hope that people today got to know just who you are and how special a person you are. So thank you for being here. Well, and thank uh, you for coming for coffee and tea. And um, well, thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it is a, just a, a terrific concept and, and a perfect execution, of course. But, uh, Thank you. But, it, you know, people do view those of us in elective office as sort of cardboard cutouts. You know, you see those cardboard cutouts of politicians, and, and people's view of us is not much different than the cardboard cutout. They have no idea often beyond our policy work or what we're saying, you know, what is that person actually like? Um, and getting a chance to kind of peer behind the screen and see what their daily life is like or what their family is like or, you know, the successes and failures they've had and yeah. what they take from it all, uh, I think is terrific. Yeah, thank you.